Hello there, I'm Clara Anfo, and welcome back to This City, a podcast dedicated to the stories, the places, and the people of our wonderful capital city, London. Now, each episode, I'll be talking to some of the city's most recognisable names, whether they were born here or have made it their second home, to hear their very own love letter to London. Today, my guest is someone who's been blowing up the internet in the last year with their satirical self-produced video sketches. He has provided us with full, deep belly laughs and education on socio-political issues throughout some very difficult times. And his work rate is truly incredible. This man really has hustled. It turns out he's tried his hand at everything. A fashion blogger, a music writer, right through to his invention of Johnny Oliver a character who is Jamie Oliver's Caribbean cousin that was his first video that went viral. From Derby to Zimbabwe via Norwich and Birmingham, I'm so glad this guy made his move to London. So please, without further ado, very excited to welcome this week, the brilliant Munya Chihuahua. Munya Chihuahua. Hello, Clara. (laughs) How are you doing? I'm great, my friend. How are you? I'm good. It sounds for some reason it sounds like I've just smoked about fifty cigarettes, but actually it's just because I'm so I'm so excited. My voice has closed itself off. Well, you know what? Let's let's let everyone know what the situation is. It's currently around eight thirty in the morning. Uh, we are squeezing each other into our quite random schedules, and you know I think I'm getting the, I'm getting you at the best time of the day. I feel you know you're catching me just before the rye bread salmon scrambled egg special so oh. this is a rare moment you know I was already doing Johnny Oliver just before you called so <laughs> some jerky flavors in your in your uh, breakfast oh, jerky flavor that's right <laughs> Minya, I'm so happy that you are on the podcast because there is so much to discuss first up I just want to say thank you you have provided me with, you know, those belly laughs that you only have with like your favourite cousin or like, your, or like with your best friend. You, you've, you've given people those laughs. Like, how honestly does it make you feel to, to, see, to see your work be received in the way that it has been? Well, first of all, um, thank you so much for saying that. It's, it, it's very surreal for me because, you know, I have my camera and my tripod in my living room. And, you know, there's no massive scale of production behind these videos. So in my mind, I'm doing something very simple. And initially I was sort of, in my mind's eye, I was visualizing my good friends watching the videos and taking some enjoyment. So to know it's gone so far and wide and is, is, is getting to people that, you know, I listen to on radio or I see on TV or I've watched in films, it just blows my mind. So on a personal level, it is mind blowing. But on a level of kind of cheering people up through lockdown, it's never a responsibility that I ever knew I would hold in my hands. But to know that I've done sort of a decent job at making people at least smile on a tough day, I think that's, that's definitely a form of gratification that I didn't know I'd be getting in 2020, you know? I think 2020 was all about personal achievement and, oh, you know, what can I do? What benchmarks and records can I break for myself? But this has been more of a, like a, a connection to people, I suppose, and more of like a, a sentimental, something of sentimental value to know that, to get messages saying, oh, you know, you've helped me through a tough day or, you know, I was having a really bad day today. That's a calibre of feedback I've never really experienced before. But I think, if anything, it's probably more rewarding, you know. 
Well, this is it, man. Like laughter is an absolute tonic for the soul. And I look, it's, it's like, you know, I, I tweeted this about you. Um, and sorry to embarrass you, but I'm just gonna keep I'm gonna keep lavishing you with love because listen, babes, in 2020, who's got time to be stush? We've got we gotta give people their their roses whilst they're still here. But you know, the way that you have managed to sort of heal our, you know, our common communities as well as educate people from outside our community with your humour is, it, it's it's really special. Oh, thank you. Well, you know, my philosophy is that sometimes if you make jokes from things, people assume it's because you don't take the issue seriously. But in actual fact, it's because I think we're all only a tiny distance away from completely crumbling at how overwhelming and miserable and cruel the world can be. And so... It definitely is. Laughter is being used as a barricade. You know, they really do say you either laugh or you cry, isn't mm. it? And so for, an, you know, I understand how awful racism is and, and classism and, you know, depriving kids of free school meals. But it's sort of like if I contribute only negativity or my own misery to that, I'm just adding to a burden that people are already feeling. And that's why I try and take the slip road and say, all right, is there any way possible? We can flip this on its head. And, you know, that's easier with some things like, you know, if you're doing a carnival workout, really, and all you're doing for a minute is just thrusting against your carpet. But when it's stuff like, <laughs> you know, when you're tackling stuff like, um, you know, class or race or, um, you know, these social issues, that's, those have been my real challenges to think, okay, how do I make people feel better about this through humour and not worse? For sure. And can we just talk about your work rate? Because it's quite honestly scary how quickly you turn things around. So just in an average day, okay, let's say, for example, I'm trying to think of many of my favourites. Okay, so when the statue of the slave owner was, was, was toppled over in Bristol, you did that with lightning speed. Just on an average day, how do you do it? Because it's just like, some people, I've, I've seen people say online, like, did Munya actually like, conspire with, with, with the people doing the offending action to like, get this done so quickly? Like, what do you, how do you do it, man? Yeah, my, my group chat is just a load of um, Tory MPs telling me what their next political move is. Me, <laughs> me, and, me and Boris are the group admin. No, it's, um, it's, all, it, it's all just coincidence, I think, to an extent. Because my former job was as a producer on a daily live show for, for music, which was previously Channel 4's music channel. So naturally, we'd always come into work and we'd scour the websites and the news outlets to see what the biggest stories were. But then, you know, halfway through, you'd then see some sort of story about Selena Gomez, you know, eating a donut off the floor. And it was like, right, change everything quickly. We've got to, we've got to make a story about this and think of jokes and make it funny. So that's already entrained into me very much. And so when something happens in the news, of course, my, my conditioning is to react to it very quickly. But to the, to the outward observer, it seems like I've done it very fast. But in my mind, I'm literally thinking of my, my, my boss's breath breathing down my neck going, have you finished the script yet? So it's all just through conditioning, you know? Right. Gotcha. Gotcha. Now, uh, what you mentioned, your previous job uh, brings us nicely to why on the podcast, because I want to know your London story. I want to know your London, your London love letter. So as you mentioned, uh, you are sat in your flat. And dear listener, before we got into this conversation, Munya did have to pause it slightly because he was getting a new, a new sofa delivered. Uh, what my neighbours were. Oh, your neighbours were. Okay, you're a good neighbour. I'm a good neighbour. Yeah, they've gone out. So they said, look, at 8.30, can you make sure the sofa gets into our flat? 
And I very nearly had them sitting on stools because I nearly forgot, but it's okay. It's it's okay. Um, so tell me, uh, the area that you obviously don't have to go, I don't need the full postcode, but where do, where do you currently reside in London? So just to prevent what would inevitably be a screaming mass of fans outside of my house. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I live in South East at the moment. Yeah. And um, generally, overall, I absolutely love London. Absolutely love it. Because I have only really ever experienced England through small cities like Norwich you know Norwich was my first real place sort of settling back into England so when I came to London and I realized realistically it's almost in in a sense like a different city every tube stop that's what I love most about it you know southeast is quite from where I'm living anyway it's quite peaceful quite green uh it feels like a little bit of a bubble I think people assume when you tell people outside of London that you live in London they literally think you live on the tube. Like they think, oh yeah, there's no peace and quiet. It's always so noisy and there's people everywhere. You know, nobody lives like in Covent Garden, as it were. Like there are (laughs) peaceful bubbles away from the chaos. And I feel like that's what I've got here in in my little Southeast uh, flat. It's a flat share anyway. He's he's keeping it real, Hans. He's keeping it real. Um, mm-hmm. Minya, t- talk to me about your perception of the city before you came to the UK. So, um, what what's your your background? You're from Zimbabwe, correct? Yeah, so I'm actually was actually born in Derby, right? Um, but I always say I'm was uh, from Zimbabwe because realistically, in those were my formative years. That is where I feel most connected to in terms of my heart and my soul. But also, I don't really remember much about being in Derby. I was only a small child. All I remember is being obsessed with uh, Baby Spice and thinking (laughs) that we were going to get married one day. Uh, Sorry, should change. We'll get married one day. Um, I just remember being a kid and thinking that she'd stay the same age and I'd keep growing older until I was (laughs) the same age to get married. I mean, she she looks fantastic. Have you had a chance to meet Emma Bunton yet? Uh, not yet. No, I'm waiting for the. Um, I'm waiting for some um, some eyebrow adjustments before I dare step into a legendary presence. Got it. But no, basically, um, I don't remember much about Derby, and so Zimbabwe is most of what I remember. But I do remember moving back to England, and the first choice was Norwich because my parents were afraid that a city like London could be. I could fall into the wrong circle if I hadn't yet sort of discovered who I was. That's so interesting. What do you think fed their perception? I think that um, London probably was a very different place at the time. Mm. I think when you've been away from England for so long, you're probably out of the loop as to, you know, what's the context of the city? Where is it racially? Where is it in terms of class divide? You know, when my parents were growing up, my dad's a black man. Uh, you know, he was experiencing racism in England on the bus, things being thrown at him, things like that. So it was just this sort of, this, this trepidness of, if we go back, is it still the same? You know, you want to protect your kids. Of and course. So of course, you're going to go to the place where you feel like there's, there's, there's the most sort of protective bubble. And around what time was this? What, 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 what year are we talking? Uh, we moved back in 2005. 2005. So little Munya goes back to Norwich with his parents first and then decides to come to London. So what made you think, all right, I, 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 need, to, I, need, to, I need to be there. Like, you know, what, is, what was it about the city that you thought, okay, this is where I need to start making things happen? So um, I, I think in my mind, when I was going and looking for jobs, you know, TV presenter jobs, radio, television, online, they were all saying London. You know, nothing was in Framingham Piggott, which is where I was living in Norwich. <laughs> Isn't that Ed Sheeran's neck of the woods? Probably, yeah. That's probably right. one of his, his multiple mansions. But um, 
London just seemed like the place I had to be in order to achieve my dreams. It felt like the place where, um, you know, you all hear about Hollywood and stuff. This felt like that. And I thought I've got to be there if I'm going to have any chance of doing what I want to do professionally. You know, this podcast, it's for people that were born here, people that moved here, like whatever. It's, it's, for, it's for everyone because, you know, the phrase is London is open, right? So what, what was your perception um, of it? And, and, and what made you think, OK, this is where I need to be to, to get things popping? So I think when you're in Norwich, well, well, when I was growing up in Norwich, we'd always take trips out to London. Do you know what I mean? It felt like, oh, this is a special treat. You know, we're going to go to London this weekend and we'd go there and you'd things would quickly switch from you know, a load of pheasants, which is what was around where I was living, to just people everywhere, all different kinds of people, different kinds of shops. Um, you know, I remember always being so enticed by street performers. I always loved going to Covent Garden and seeing the magicians and just thinking, you know, this really is where it's at. And so naturally, as I began to grow older and I started to think more about work and less about sort of entertainment uh, in the sense of, you know, I started to think with an adult mind of where, where do I need to be to achieve my adult dreams of being in TV, radio, media? All, all roads led to London. And so then it was just a case of how do I make enough money to actually live here for more than two weeks? <laughs> Mate. Tell me about it. Those those initial steps into trying to get a career off the ground in the city, like it's it's not easy, you know, because I'm sure people are seeing what's happening with you now and maybe are, and I'm sure actually are wrongly assuming that you just popped out of nowhere. But this this has been a long grind, right? Oh, Clive, hey, do you know what? I tried everything. Because, okay, my, my philosophy, first of all, was I always tried to think about the whatever my goals were as like a, or, or whatever the obstacles or barricades were, I was thinking of them as like a wall. So I was trying to break it down, you know, scientifically almost. And I was like, okay, if there's a wall in front of you and you are hammering away at it with an object, it could be a pickaxe, it could be a teaspoon. But technically, if you kept going, eventually part of it will come down because obviously you, all you're doing is just relentlessly chipping away at this at this material and it must it must crumble so i was just in my mind going through different tools i was like am i going to be a fashion vlogger and i tried that for a little while you know literally getting out my five vintage jackets and you know going to bloody primark and doing some sort of terrible haul and being like mm, i don't think this is really resonating there's something i think i'm lacking a bit of the zoella magic <laughs> i i had no idea that you were a fashion that's incredible i mean you say fashion i mean if i was to show you my wardrobe i think very quickly the zoom call would end but um <laughs> then i was trying things like music blogging so I would try and as soon as releases would drop, I would write up a review. I'd review Kendrick's album, ASAP Rocky's album. I thought, mm, it's not really hitting. Radio, I tried. Uh, I tried doing like weekly news roundups on Twitter, six and 60, I called it, where it was like six stories in 60 seconds. So I've been around. Look, I've been making content for, I will say, close to seven years. Well, I remember my, my first my first memory of you, seeing you out and about, was probably around, I want to say, 2016, 2017 at the Brixton Academy at the NME Awards. And you and you were backstage reporting. And I was like, oh, OK, that's that guy's got interesting eyebrows. 
He's 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 doing what it do. And I think I might have seen you like around the BBC building a little bit, and then I kind of didn't see you for a while. And then all of a sudden, these videos start popping up, and then I got to learn of Barty Crease, and <laughs> life was never the same. <laughs> you know, it's that that that's that's what I fully intended. You know, you see a little bit of me, and then boom, out of nowhere, Barty Crease in your face. You know, that's that's my that was always the goal. Um, so Barty Cruz, for anyone who doesn't know, is my news character. We're not just being absolute filth on the podcast. <laughs> Listen, you can say what you want on this podcast, honey. You can say what the hell you can even say the word fuck. How about that? Okay, you that sounds great. Shit. I haven't got a character called that just yet, but, but right. <laughs> I'm working on it. <laughs> but um, I think it was very strange for a lot of people because even the guests that I interviewed on radio uh, when I was working at uh, well, when I had a shirt represent. I know a lot of them, it was very strange to turn around and all of a sudden, like, um, you know, I was being featured on these music pages and stuff like this. And it was, I think it, for me, I, I sometimes have a chuckle to myself because it really affirmed to me, you've got to be nice to people because you don't know what's, what trajectory they're going to take. I remember bosses and managers who were complete and utter douchebags to me. And then all of a sudden it's WhatsApps. Hey, we'd love to have a little chat. That's how you know. They just get the straight blue ticks. Now I'll always be polite back, but I remember. <laughs> you know, I remember. Listen, we are kindred because woodwork crawlers, when things get popping, it's very fascinating to see who, who decides that you're now, you know, useful or, or relevant to their, to their lives. But I think most importantly for me, it gives me a lot of happiness and hope that you can change your, you can change your life any day. And I've always said this. You know, I used to think about resolutions, New Year's resolutions, and I used to think it kind of sucks that you only get one chance to sort of reinvent yourself every year. But then I thought, well, technically, if I turned around and said to you, oh, I'm, I'm going to drink four litres of water a day from now on, like I don't have to wait for a certain day to start doing that. You can change it at any time. And so that's why I think it is OK to just trial and error, you know, try a bit of fashion vlogging and doesn't seem to be working, music blogging, Twitter roundups until you find the thing that sticks. And on my third sketch, that's the one that went viral. This was like Johnny Oliver, uh, parody <laughs> chef of Jamie Oliver's jerk rice. And I thought to myself, okay, I've gone up a certain amount of followers. The TV station I'm working at is telling me I need te- you know, thousands of followers in order to even have a shot at presenting. So I'll just do more of Johnny Oliver. So I start doing more of Johnny Oliver. And then I think to myself, mm, when's this going to get boring? And the next thing I know, I see a story about Theresa May uh, going viral for dancing in, in in some sort of um she, I think she'd gone to visit some schools in different parts of Africa and then she was captured dancing on the news and I thought okay maybe I'll try this uh, to be Theresa May's dance instructor and that was my next character so all I've really been doing is trial and error and then just refining the things that I can see are really hitting differently you know for sure, doing it so well. Now you mentioned like your your first forays into city were via you know going to Covent Garden, loving the the street performers, and you know hammering away at, at at your craft in trying to find your different avenues until you found something that worked. Where were you doing this from? Like, talk to me about the first place that you that that you lived um, in London. How did you find it? Ah. <laughs> your your face oh, just. Oh my! Yeah. <laughs> All right, so at the time. I was living in Birmingham with uh, my now Mm ex-girlfriend and we had both been, you know, through uni, both from Norwich and she was going to Birmingham to become a teacher. So I thought to myself, right, if I go back to Norwich right now, the TV dream is done, but I can't afford to move to London. So let's move it together in Birmingham. 
Now, the thing is, we were very young. And so I think very quickly it was like, oh, like this is a lot, like living with a partner is a lot. And so she was like, look, I think maybe you should look to move out. And so it became this mad dash for me to find somewhere in London. And I was going to work, going to these flat viewings and literally walking into what felt like a coffin in every flat and being like, surely this is not how people are living in London. <laughs> like I remember walking to one room and it was basically a corridor. And I was like, where's the bed? And he's like, oh, well, you just fold it out the wall. And this bed sort of flung out the wall. And then that was the room, a bed. The, the room in its entirety was a bed. And I thought, I can't, I can't deal with these conditions. Take me back to Framingham Piggott. And um, <laughs> anyway, I found this place. It was partway Clapton, partway Homerton. It was right next to the Hackney Marshes. Mm-hmm. Now, if you've been to East recently, you'll know that, you know, the buzzword is gentrification. And true. Anywhere that you walked around my neighborhood was just sort of middle-class families walking their their dog Monty or whatever, (laughs) right? But this pocket where I lived had not been gentrified. And so very quickly, I realized that the room I'd found myself for 400 pounds all in which tells you everything you need to know about the that's size a, of the room. I mean, that's a that's a flipping touch there. That's a bargain. <laughs> oh my god! The window looked back, at, looked out onto this back alley, and honestly, Clara, I've seen just about every Netflix series in real life happen in that back alley. <laughs> CSI Miami, uh, Sex Education, you know, um, Top Boy. I've seen them all happen in that back alley. I've seen everything. My alarm clock was the sound of policemen's of policemen's footsteps sprinting after someone every morning. And I remember one day, it was like a really hot day. And uh, I remember hearing this commotion outside my window. And this dog had just collapsed. And um, A dog? A dog had collapsed. And instead of uh, taking it, whoever these people were, instead of taking it some water or whatever, I remember them just like wrapping it up in this leather jacket and carrying it off. <laughs> just thinking, what have I just witnessed? A dog being transported on the hottest day of the year in a leather jacket. Wow. So yeah, man. But do you know what? I think those experiences are good because it's just a bit of a wake-up call. It forces you to be street smart. It forces you to realise this is the world, you know? And mm. then it makes you appreciate when you find somewhere a bit nicer and a bit quieter uh, and a bit less sort of, uh, bit, a bit less commotion. Yeah, I think it's a light and shade, isn't it, as they call it? Oh, for sure. And like, you know, I, I wouldn't want the city to be in any other way, to, to, to be honest. Um, how did you find getting around when you first moved here? Because I know there's people, I know people from outside of, of, of London, when they first see that tube map, they're like, oh my God, were you quite quick to get smart to public transport? Well, you see, my dad, uh, so my dad is quite a mysterious man, Okay, quite an unconventional man. And he was obsessed with this idea of us being, you know, street smart the second we exited the womb. And so what that meant for him, for example, is when I moved to Norwich, he was like, right, I want you to be able to walk to school by yourself. And we're going to do this on a, as a step-by-step process. So on the first day, we walked to school together. Then the next week, we walked to school and he was sort of slightly behind me, like a, <laughs> like a sort of lingering um, stranger. Right. So then he, I, I would literally look over my shoulder and he'd, He'd be like a centimetre away, Hello. but not yeah, but not walking next to me. I was like, fine. And then it basically got it got the distance increased to the point where he was sort of walking, maybe like five minutes behind, until I was confident enough to to walk by myself. Right. So with the tube maps, it was the same thing. We got to London. He taught me how to use it, and then for the next few times we came, he would just sort of stand next to me, mute, whilst watching me calculate the tube map. So 
I'm pretty sure there's a sort of a police record of my dad somewhere where he's like, he just continues standing behind this little boy. Why is it this just this kid? Why does he just stand next to him without saying anything? But no, he he sort of helped me to navigate the city, very much throwing me in the deep end and going, cool, here's a map, work it out, uh, where are you going? So when I came to London, I was already pretty well equipped. And to be honest, I love the tube because you can just, you can use the time, can't you? Yeah. Listen to a podcast. You can listen to this podcast. Right you can on. read, you can sketch, you can write, you can, you can work. So I don't actually consider traveling in London to be dead time. I'm always trying to use it. And so many times I'll actually write a sketch on the way back from somewhere. And the time is because I can see a story when I'm out and about and go, guys, sorry, I got to bounce on the coffee. I've got to go do something on the tube home. I'll be writing the sketch, get home, get it done. You know, sometimes it even contributes to the speed. Giving me Superman. I love that. Like, sorry, guys, got to go. <laughs> Slowly opening the shirt with like my little Superman uh, skin tight costume underneath. I can see it. Well, by the way, what is what is it like for you on public transport now? Do you get do you get recognised quite a bit? Yeah, now it's got to a point now where it's sort of. It's some, some days it gets a bit scary, actually, because. I think even from last year, uh, I would see people like filming me on the tube and stuff, which isn't my favourite. I'd I'd always prefer just to people to say, oh, come out, can we have a photo or whatever? I wish people could see this because it's just amazing the way that people try and film me these days. They'll honestly, (laughs) they'll (laughs) act like they're doing their makeup routine. But I'm like, I can see your hand on the record button. Or they'll do this thing where they pretend to fall asleep and and the phone's just... Uh, coincidentally resting on their chest at the exact height of my face. Oh, come and, um, on, really? And it's, yeah, and it's got to the point where during summer, when it was really boiling hot, I mean, you couldn't not be outside. I don't have a garden, but we have a little balcony. I would have to go onto a balcony with uh, a T-shirt on my head and these alien glasses because people were driving past and spotting me and then like pulling over in the middle of traffic and jumping out and being like, oh, can we have a photo? Uh, come down, say something for the camera on my own balcony. Or people would drive past and then message me saying, oh, I know where you live now. Oh, God. So I was like, oh, gosh. Because remember, I never really signed up for any degree of fame. <laughs> I only sort of just wanted to make my funny videos. So this is something that I'm trying to navigate. And I think in London, where there's so many people, now it's pretty hard to avoid at least maybe one or two people who've seen my vids. Well, this is it. But, but you know what? I think one of the, the uh, I guess, I don't want to say bonuses because, as we know, we are in a wild time. But I have to say, having a face mask on, now that's mandatory, that must be a little bit more helpful. It honestly the doesn't brows, work. The brows, damn, it I is the brows. <laughs> Unless they can make a, a, a monobrow face mask, then I'm afraid <laughs> people are still going to keep trying to film me pretending to do their makeup. But it's fine. I get it. It's like, uh, you know, it's sort of if you've brought someone happiness and they've shared that with friends, I guess they want to be like, oh, look, he's here. But um, I'm just sort of getting used to it. And, you know, it just means little things like I can't even scratch my nose anymore because what if the exact moment my finger lingers around the nostril? What if that snapped and it's like, you know, front page of the guided miniature hour picks nose on the central line? I don't want to be that guy, Clara. And you know what? Hopefully, you you, you will never be that guy. But I am yeah. just saying, I would. You know, I wouldn't. I would. I would. I wouldn't do that to you. I was like, let me just take a, a cheeky <laughs> screenshot. It would be a pretty on, slow news on... day. It'd have to be a pretty slow news day for me to be on the front of the Guardian picking my nose. I think I've got yeah. ahead of myself there. <laughs> 
I mean, this moment is, uh, look, it's, 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 look, I'm going to use all the buzzword, unprecedented. We don't know what's around the corner, unpredictable. But the hope is, is that we're going to get back into the clubs and out and about. So I have to ask, like, where, like, what are your best raving memories of, of the city? Like, where, where, where are your sort of hangs for, like, music and just and going out mm -hmm. in the club? Are you the first on the dance floor? Oh, no, absolutely not. I'm, I'm very, um, I'm only confident, really, around the people that I know to a degree. So when it's strange, you know, and you go clubbing and it's just all strangers. Honestly, I, I know I have some semblance of rhythm, but it just disappears as soon as I get onto the club dance floor. Honestly, my shaku is so stiff. <laughs> <laughs> I'm actually ashamed of myself. You shaku off the beat. I shaku off the beat proudly. You know, I don't <laughs> even know where the, the beat is nowhere near my shaku. Anyway, that I think I prefer nights where there's a little bit more of a focus. So what I mean by that is hip hop karaoke. I don't know if you've ever been. Mm -hmm. Hip-hop karaoke used to be in the Oxford Circus Now it's going to move to Hoxton And that is a night where you go to watch people perform hip-hop karaoke, literally And usually get the sort of same bases there So I'm quite familiar, I feel quite comfortable there Although I will say, it was one of my first nights out in London And um, <laughs> something very bad happened So my friend, I had a friend who was part of the team that organises it and he worked in the same building as we did. And he went, right, guys, everyone from, from the office, come down to Hip Hop Karaoke. It'll be amazing. Now, these times, I wasn't doing comedy. Neither was I doing comedy rappers. However, I did like uh, freestyling. You know, me and my sisters, when we were in Norwich, to pass the time, naturally, we would freestyle. So we went on this night out and I could hear people really nailing their performances. The crowd was going wild. It was like a scene out of Eight Mile. And I thought, I'm going to do one of my freestyles. So... They said, right, what tune do you want to do? You pick up this long book. And I just looked at any old tune and I went, oh, I'll do, um, what do you call it? Uh, I, yeah, I'll, I'll pick this tune. So the instrumental starts playing. It's my turn. So it's like, the DJ's like, all right, counting me. And he's like, one, two, one, two, three. And I start freestyling. And sort of like everyone's hands go down. And then I just hear this record scratch. And the DJ's like, yo, yo, no freestyling allowed. You've got to take it from the top. So I'm like, oh, shit. So I now look at the lyric sheet and I haven't picked something nice and slow like 50 Cent in the club or, you know, something with even less words. I've picked uh, More Money, More Problems, Biggie, Mace, Diddy. Right. All 17 verses of it. I don't have a clue what the words are. So they hand me a, a lyric sheet and I literally stand there for two minutes, shaking, sweating onto this lyric sheet, butchering one of the best hip hop songs of all time. And I could not show my face there again for two years, Clara. I was mortifying. That was at the social on Little Portland Street, right? Yeah, man. I can remember the horror. It was one of those ones where I finished the performance, in quotation marks, and walked back to our office gang. And one of them was like, well, I mean, you know, you picked a good beat. And I think when they're commenting on the beat and not a single one of your lyrics or, or performance aspects, you know, yeah, you butchered it. Yeah, but look how things have come full circle. Yeah, yeah. So I th that, that showed him, didn't it? He should have let me freestyle. He was just trying to shade that light of mine. Exactly. It was a, it was a, uh, a formative experience, shall we say. Mm, um, mm. Minya, I want to talk a bit about food because you did mention at the start of our conversation that you were having the rather, I guess it's kind of a bougie breakfast. A bit, a bit of rye. I think rye bread feels fancy to me. It's because someone said that they pump all of the normal bread with full of stuff. And I always get really freaked out when I think about there being like loads of different jellies and substances and like animal parts in, in something as simple as bread. So I, was, so I was like, do they do it to rye? 
And they're like, no, no, Ryan's good. So I just snatched it off the shelf this morning. But I am not bougie, Clara. I, I tell you what, when I moved to London, yeah? Yeah. And I didn't really know how to cook like that. One of my first meals was uh, three forms of potato. So I had mashed potato, chips, and roast potato in the same meal. Because I oh. thought each I thought each of them would bring something different to the meal. It didn't. There is Listen, there's no jerky flavour in that. That's just... just... <laughs> there's no jerky flavour, no. That was completely lacking. So yeah, rye bread and scrambled eggs is, you know, it, come on, it's not... I'm no Gordon Ramsay. I mean, where, where are you going to eat? Where have been some of your most memorable meals in the city? Or, or like, what's your go-to takeaway spot? Uh, I love going to this place called Cook Daily, which is a vegan street food restaurant with almost like a sort of, um, I'd say like in terms of having sweet and sour dishes and those kind of things. I think the menu is very much based off like a classic Chinese restaurant menu, but it's like with a vegan twist. Very, very popular amongst Grimeyes for some reason. Yeah. Like Jamie Skepta had them at the BBK takeover at the O2 a couple of years back. Charles Gambino went there when he came to London. Really, really great. I think it's now moved to Box Park in East. Yeah. I love, love Thai. Um, so I go to Hyburn Islington. There's a place called Raybeng, I think it's called. Really, really good. And Caribbean food. Now, when I moved to London, I had <laughs> been nowhere near a plantain ever. You see, I can't even say it right. No, you can. I was just going to say, you say plantain, which is the correct way to say it. Let me categorically state that now. Plantain. It is. Oh, yeah. it's, it's plantain. Carry on. There we go. I'd never even experienced plantain or anything like that. So you can imagine when I went into my first Caribbean uh, takeaway, I was so baffled. I thought they were so rude to me. I thought, right, where's TripAdvisor? I'm going to write a review right now. Terrible service. And I remember sort of speaking to someone about it and they said, no, that's how you know the food is good. Exactly. I thought, what? So having my self-confidence degraded over not knowing what curry goat was is <laughs> a means of telling me that the dish is good. I don't think so. I, I proper kicked off and then I realised, okay, actually, this is this is the way. This is the way it's got to be. So I've had mixed experiences with Caribbean takeaways. Uh, I've had some that have been an absolute taste sensation and then some that has given me food poisoning for three or four days. Oh, gosh. So it's been a bit of a Russian roulette or a Caribbean roulette. Um, but no, I think... <laughs> Being introduced to to that to, to kind of that that world of food has actually been amazing, and it's just crazy to think I was growing up without even knowing this is like it existed. Like I didn't know what rice and peas was. I didn't know what jerk chicken was. So coming to London and kind of having Caribbean takeaways on my doorstep was is has been one of my favourite things. Well, yeah, I mean, I did. I wanted to ask because, and, and, and you kind of led to it beautifully. From what I know, Norwich and uh, Framlingham, where you, where where you mentioned, um, Fram, Fra, Fram, is that how you say it? Framlingham? Framlingham. Framling, Framlingham. But confusingly, there is a Framlingham as well. Aha! I see. Yeah. I'm guessing they're not the epicenters of you know of Zimbabwean expats. <laughs> um, so coming to London was that an edifying experience for you uh, culturally? I mean, you know, you mentioned it via food, but did you find a new level of comfort with with who you were and who you are? So I'm when I lived in Zimbabwe. You have to remember that. Interestingly most of my school were actually uh, Muslim or Hindu. And then maybe about 30% of the kids there were black and there was not many mixed race kids. So even though I sort of was growing up, I was actually growing up around every race apart from white people, actually. Mm. So when I moved to Norwich, obviously that was completely flipped on its head. I was very much isolated. There were so many things about the culture that I was just completely deprived of. 
Like I didn't know what Afro beats was. I didn't know what dancehall was because there was no one who would listen to it and there was no way for me to know. They weren't playing it on the radio stations I was listening to. So when I moved to London and it's just this complete influx of music and food and culture and I'm back amongst people that I feel familiar with and I feel at home with, of course, I felt completely at home and I just exhaled this big sigh of relief because I wasn't having to sort of construct a personality every day in the sense of when you're not around uh, people who look or are like you, you're sort of trying to fulfill a stereotype of what, well, I was anyway, at university and uh, in Norwich, somewhat trying to fulfill a stereotype of what I should be. So Mm -hmm. thinking of the music I should listen to or the way I should dress because I didn't have a reference point myself. And so coming to London, realizing, okay, fine, not all black people are walking around with enormous medallions or mohawks or like jeans with rappers' faces on the back, all of which I had in Norwich. Wow, that visual. (laughs) Yeah, oh yes. It's on the internet somewhere. Don't search it. I'm telling you now. Guys, sorry, we're going to search it. Carry on. (laughs) Um, So coming to London and realizing, look, you can just... You can just relax. You can be at a comfortable level of it. You don't have to emphasize anything to anyone. That was just a real moment of exhale and being like, look, I feel comfortable. I feel at home. And that's why I always say, I say that London, more than anywhere I've lived, Birmingham, Sheffield, Norwich, Derby, is where I feel most at home in England. Well, Munya, we're so very happy that you feel at home. We're so very happy that you are just you. And thank you so very much for having the chat, babes. It's been a delight. No, it's been lovely. Thank you so very much for joining me for another episode of This City. I've been your host, Clara Anfo. And if you've enjoyed the podcast, please let us know. Tell a friend to tell a friend. Please rate, review, and don't forget to subscribe wherever you get your podcast so you can catch the next episode as soon as it lands. And also, do let me know who you would like to hear next. I'm all ears. Thank you so much again for listening. This has been a Sony Music fourth floor creative production. <laughs>